Here we are at episode 273 of Monster Kid Radio, opening the episode with the song Ape Surfing After Lunch from the band The Apes Party. This is from their two-song album or single release, Surfing After Lunch. You can find them at theapesparty.bandcamp.com. When you're done listening to the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear, welcome to Monster Kid Radio. I am your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I am stoked to get some more Planet of the Apes action on here at Monster Kid Radio. Yeah, it's a little slightly outside of the wheelhouse. I know we try to stick in the 30s to the 60s here on MKR, but Planet of the Apes, come on. I think it's right at home here on Monster Kid Radio, and this episode will be covering the fourth film. Longtime listeners know... This is my first time watching any of the Planet of the Apes films, and I've been guided through these films, through this franchise, by my friend, fellow podcaster, fellow producer, Scott Morris. He loves these movies, and he's taken me through the Planet of the Apes films. We are on film number four, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. Wow. Okay. This franchise, and I'm going to talk about this in the discussion with Scott, this franchise seems to kind of go all over the place. I mean, you've got this dystopian, far-future sci-fi thing. You've got completely, utterly bleak ending of the second film. Things are a little goofy and bouncy, and then you're shooting babies, and then, you know, wow. It's all over the place, and I love it. Having a blast. So that's what you're going to get in this episode of Monster Kid Radio. But before I get to that, I've got some feedback. Hey, Derek, it's Chris Franklin from the Super Mates Podcast. I uh, just wanted to call and tell you how much I really enjoyed your uh, Superman the Mole Man episode with Joe Suber, big fan of uh, of Comic Book Central, so it was great to hear Joe on the show again, and uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of that movie. Um, I think I first saw that movie stripped into The Adventures of Superman. I seem to remember watching that one at my grandparents' house and being kind of freaked out by it, so they, the Mole Man scared me, too, when I was a kid. I think it was just a very strange nature of these little guys coming out of the ground but uh yeah the they you know the the bad wigs and you know bald caps and the electrolux vacuum but it's a great story and what's really interesting is you get the social crusader superman from like the golden age comics the original version of superman he had carried on through the radio series and robert maxwell had moved from the radio series to the tv series so you had that production uh, legacy there, and he kept kind of the original version of Superman alive, whereas the comic books had already kind of started to soften. Superman is more of a Boy Scout type. He was less, uh, you know, he was he was more concerned about following the law versus true justice, and, you know, like you guys said, George Reeves doesn't take crap off anybody, and it's just great to see, and, you know, as, as Joe pointed out, juxtaposing that with the Superman we get now in the movies, where he's so very indecisive and just, you know, mopes and doesn't seem to do much, lets things happen around him. Uh, it's quite a contrast, and we definitely need more of a George Reeves Superman. I'm a Chris Reeves guy myself, but I had no problem as a kid saying, okay, if you're a comic guy, you know this. Christopher Reeves is on Earth 1. George Reeves is the Earth 2 Superman. So there. Uh, but, yeah, I really enjoyed that. I hope to hear Joe back on the show again. And I would suggest, I know maybe you guys thought about this, and maybe you mentioned it and I don't remember, but The Time of Their Lives, the Abbott and Costello movie that involves ghosts. I know it's a stretch for Monster Kid Radio, but there's a really cool, creepy seance sequence, and I think that'd be right up your guys' alley. So that's my suggestion. Again, enjoy the episode. Look forward to hearing more from both you guys. Talk to you later. Bye. That's Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast. 
and he had some thoughts about last week's episode with Joe Stuber, the man behind Comic Book Central. He and I went through every single Abbott and Costello meet the monster movie here in the past on MKR. And last week we did that Superman in the Mold Man movie. A lot of fun. And you know what? I, I really like that idea that there's like an Earth 1 and Earth 2 Superman. Christopher's one, George's the other. I love that idea. Pretty cool. In fact, now that I think about it, I may have seen some fan art somewhere online in which we saw every Batman, every Superman, a couple of iterations of Wonder Woman and Aquaman here or there, somebody from Smallville, mixed into one collage with the Flash at the center of it. And it was a take on the whole Flashpoint, Crisis of Infinite Earths thing. And I believe both versions of Superman were in that piece of art. You know what? This is not comic book kid radio. This is Monster Kid Radio. So I'm going to save you the comic book nerdity. Unless that's what you like. And if you do, you need to check out the Supermates podcast because that's what Chris does. Chris is also a huge classic Star Trek fan. And I swear this is going to happen. Listeners, hold me to it. Chris and I are going to talk about classic Star Trek here on the show. Sometime this year, we're going to talk about the Star Trek monsters, the aliens. Cool stuff. We're going to get into that. Chris, don't let me forget. Listeners, don't let me forget. And I can't forget about Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. We're going to get to that right after I spin a couple of trailers and go over a few other bits of information like this. The Monster Kid Radio Patreon page is live, and I want to thank everybody who's been and is currently a patron of Monster Kid Radio. Because of you, we're able to do certain things here at Monster Kid Radio Central, like pay for the URL, pay for our podcast hosting, make sure that we have everything that we need to produce this episode every single week. We just got another patron just this past week. We are almost at the next milestone, the next goal. When we hit this milestone, we're going to launch a new monthly podcast that goes out to everybody. That podcast will be called Married with Monsters. It will feature me and my wife. Brenda. Now, Brenda and I used to podcast quite a bit back during the mail order zombie days. She was my co-host on that old podcast. And if you want to hear her back on a podcast on the regular, all we have to do is hit that next milestone. Of course, there are other milestones after that that might allow us to create audio dramas, fan commentary tracks, get Monster Kid Radio to places like Monster Bash or G-Fest. And of course, bringing our recording equipment there so we can bring you to those conventions, or bring the convention to, you know what I mean. Anyway, head over to patreon.com slash monsterkidradio, or just click on Patreon over at monsterkidradio.net. You can learn about the program, you can learn about Patreon and how to become a patron yourself, and even watch our Patreon video. Hi, my name is Derek M. Cook, and I am your host, writer, and producer of Monster Kid Radio, the Rondo Award-winning podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. For the past 200-plus episodes, we release a new show twice a week covering some sort of classic monster movie. And I'm talking going all the way back to the silence, to the late 60s, maybe even toe dipping into the 70s every once in a while, covering these kinds of films. Not only do we talk about the movies, we talk about the fandom of these kinds of movies and have had interviews with people who are connected to these classic monster movies. We've spoken with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, Julie Adams, even Joel Hodgson, and people like filmmaker Christopher R. Mim. I love producing Monster Kid Radio, and with your help, we can make Monster Kid Radio even better. Thanks to the patrons, we've already covered the basics. URL, podcast hosting fees, all of that is covered. 
thanks to those who have supported our Patreon page. Some of our other milestones include things like creating a behind-the-scenes production journal-style podcast. We'll go out once a month with bloopers, outtakes, just kind of my behind-the-scenes process of producing Monster Kid Radio. We can do monthly commentary tracks for classic monster movies because, let's face it, a lot of our favorite monster movies just don't have the commentary track that we'd like to see included on a DVD or Blu-ray release. We hit this milestone, Monster Kid Radio is going to start producing those commentary tracks. We also are looking at having some original artwork created for the podcast by commissioning original artwork from various creators and then making that artwork available for all the listeners to enjoy. And finally, our highest milestone, we're looking to launch a monthly audio drama, one part old-time radio, one part classic monster movie, and all parts awesome. And of course, by supporting Monster Kid Radio at the various levels, you may get yourself some nice rewards, up to and including a Monster Kid Radio care package mailed directly to you from the Monster Kid Radio studio. Now, Monster Kid Radio will always be free to download, and the best thing that you can do for me is just download the show and listen. I appreciate having you guys and gals give me your ears for anywhere from an hour to two hours a week. I love talking about monster movies. I love talking about classic horror, sci-fi, and fantasy. I would be doing this anyway. That I get to do it in front of a microphone and share it with people, that's a bonus. The monster gravy? Well, that's hitting the other milestones. With your support, I'm sure we'll be able to hit those milestones soon. And if you haven't already done so, I encourage you to check out the podcast at monsterkidradio.net. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. that can catch up with the plane and snatch the people out of it. The Navy versus the Night Monsters. Starring Mamie Van Doren, who triggered earthly emotions in the midst of unearthly events. Anthony Isley, fighting fiendish, crawling things. From Antarctica, frozen for a million years. To a small naval outpost in the Pacific comes a cargo of deviltry, devastation, death. Attacking bodies, destroying minds. Killing terror in a desperate, endless fight against a nameless horror. Those things are multiplying. There's no telling how fast. I wouldn't be surprised. We've got up to be hundreds, maybe even thousands. The whole island will be covered with them. Are you a geek looking for love? Do you long to find discussion on that special comic, TV, episode, movie, or toy that's just right for you? Then why not try Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast? Chris and Cindy Franklin can match you with that certain something to satisfy your genre-related longings, no matter the subject. Superheroes.
But Robin's like, that was really nice of you, Batman. He's like, I had the room loaded with kryptonite. I can turn it on at any moment. <laughs> and here's the thing. It's, you're talking about... Now, think about this. It's an apartment building owned by Batman. Do you not think that Batman doesn't have their place but Sci-fi. I don't know. You talk about being a sex symbol and stuff like that. I mean, I know a lot of girls thought, you know... William Shatner was it, but I had a, the biggest crush on George Takai. I, 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 I did. I thought, you know. Sorry about that. Horror. And then when we see the Wolfman for the first time, he's in, I don't know, we don't a know. A long sleeve shirt, shirt and a dark pair of pants. Pants with a belt. With a with belt. A belt. That's right. <laughs> and his shirt's buttoned up all the way, too. Yeah, yeah. And his so, arms. So after he changes into this ferocious beast who can't talk, and doesn't seem to be able to think beyond just attacking things. He, he has lots of dexterity. He went through his closet and... I like this outfit better. Action figures. I actually had all the figures and all the accessories up to a certain point. I really literally did collect them all. You know. Including Shira. I was going to get to that, but... Chris and Cindy have found their own happiness through discussions like this. I could be friends with him. I could be down with this version of the ultra-humanoid. You could be friends with the dude who put his brain inside a mutated albino ape. I married you! <laughs> oh. If you're tired of searching for geek love, then sign up with Supermates for free at supermatescomic.blogspot.com or on iTunes. Hammer Film Productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Down Place is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer Horror, the engaging storytelling, and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. A port city in the Canadian province of Ontario and Canada's 10th largest city. This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes and other information about these classic films. 1951 Down Place can be found in iTunes or their website www.1951downplace.com Oh, sorry, I thought you said Hamilton. 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Hello, this is Raider Director Christopher R. Mim, the master of the Mimiverse. You're listening to Monster Kid Radio with Derek M. Cook, the greatest person I've ever met, sure. <laughs> you can leave that out. Keep it. Now, the biggest, the newest, the most exciting of all the Planet of the Apes pictures. Climaxed by the spectacular revolt of the apes. The most awesome, the most horrifying spectacle in the annals of science fiction. 
first pampered as pets, then abused as servants, now oppressed as slaves. of all security forces, police, militia, and reserve defense units. See that every entrance into the city is cordoned off immediately. Yes, sir. Our control methods will include the use of tear gas and sedation darts. There will be but one control method. Shoot to kill. Ready? the screen explode as man faces ape in the ultimate revolution. Where there is fire, there is smoke. And in that smoke from this day forward, my people will plot and plan for the inevitable day of man's downfall. And that day is upon you now! Listeners, I'm going to put this next guest in the authenticator to find out what he really thinks of me, or at least what he really thinks of the movie Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. We're doing an apes movie, and I wouldn't be doing it without Scott Morris. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. Uh, Just to let you know, I am pretty close to a second floor window. (laughs) Spoilers. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be hard to talk about this movie without spoiling it. Yeah, yeah. I think... Most listeners have already seen the Apes movies, so they're all one up on me. As listeners may know or remember, I have not seen the Apes movies prior to the start of our journey to Apesville. I don't know. When did we first start doing this? Oh, it's been a while, but now you're four for five. You got one more to go. One more of the original set. Yeah, it's been almost, wow, we started this journey over a year ago. What's taken us so long to get through them? Timing, scheduling. Yeah, I think so. I think so. We're going to try to get the next one uh, sooner rather than later. But uh, yeah, let, let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Uh, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, the fourth film. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I told you there was going to be a change of tone coming. Oh, no kidding. So, listen, Scott and I, we've been podcasting together for a long time. We do the 1951 Down Place podcast together. Uh, we're longtime friends, close friends, and a lot of times when we're watching the same movie to cover on a podcast or whatever, I will often get a message from Scott through my phone making a joke, a comment, whatever. And I mean, it's great. I look forward to these little mini interactions in the middle of a movie. This time, I sent him a message. <laughs> I got about an hour into this movie and Man, I just felt bad for being a human. <laughs> My favorite part of your message was, I've got about a half hour to go. It's been pretty bleak. I hope it picks up. Uh, <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> oh, wow. It mm. is a very bleak film. It really is. Uh, it takes place in the future, 1991. <laughs> <laughs> and before we really get into what the film is, I'd like yeah. to talk a little bit about what the film could have been. <laughs> Better or worse? 
Um, the original, the first original uh, draft of the screenplay by Paul Dean would have actually been a lot more sci-fi. Okay. Uh, he had um, sent the um, producer, Arthur P. Jacobs, an early draft or some memos about what he really wanted to do. And he had two very unlikely inspirations for this film. And the first one was Todd Browning's 1932 film Freaks. Wow. Yep. The story was to pick up with uh, Zira and Cornelius' son, Milo, as he grows up in Armando's circus, pretending to be an ape man who tries to fit in with the circus society of freaks. Now, they huh. would have befriended Milo and helped him protect his true identity. Now, I said there was two inspirations. The other one was a 1957 book called The Black Cloud from Fred Hoyle. Now, Fred Hoyle was an astronomer, and his story was about an immersed cosmic cloud of dust that approaches Earth and threatens all life. And this cloud turns out to be intelligent and telepathic. And the story would have had Milo, still being under the threat from authorities, found to be the only being on the planet that could have telepathically communicated with this cloud. So that was the basis of the first draft, was going to be freaks in this book called The Black Cloud. And it unfortunately fell apart when they couldn't get the rights to Fred Hoyle's book, The Black Cloud. So it would have been a completely different film. Mm, okay, yeah. Also sounds like there might have been a little bit more money involved. <laughs> Well, then, after those ideas, uh, Paul Dean then pursued the concept of the plague that destroyed all of Earth's cats and dogs. And th that script had the first third of the film would have taken place still there in the circus. The middle would have dealt with that uh, pet plague. And the final third would have had Milo lead a rebellion after working for a cruel master named Breck on his estate. Oh, okay. And he'd hoped to end that story with humans performing at a circus attended by apes, very similar to how Pierre Boulle's ending for his proposed sequel to The Planet of the Apes would have been. And that's where the name Breck comes up yep. for the first time. Okay. So those were the first two early ideas for this film. And was it strictly budgetary or the re – I mean, well, I mean, they couldn't get the rights to the one book, but why, why didn't they go that route, you think? Uh, it was budgetary. Yeah. Um, they actually got – this was – of the films that we've seen so far, this was the one that had the smallest budget. And that wasn't necessarily a reflection of the studio's thoughts on this film. Specifically, 20th Century Fox was having a hard time money-wise altogether. They had not had a lot of successes recently, had a slight changing of the guard at the top, and it was less about – Dumping a whole – I think the documentary on the Blue Wave puts it the best. They were not shooting for home runs. They were shooting for, you know, base hits. Yep. And that's just how production was back then for these films. And this one took a hit budget-wise. But I think they did a pretty decent job with what they were given. I mean the way they shot it, it does make the world feel like it's a very small place with maybe about 200 people in it. And that's about it. And maybe a city yeah, block. Yeah, maybe a city block. Yeah. Overall though, I, I – I mean, they didn't have to build that set or the outside set anyway. They shot what on a college campus, didn't they? Part of it was a college campus and part of it was uh, what used to be Fox's back lot, but then they had to sell it off and Century City, an actual city, was built. And it was still actually under construction uh, when they used some of the buildings for the exterior shots. So there is this weird kind of sort of recognizable architecture and production design, but not quite. Which I, I appreciate. I mean, I feel like, and I talked about this last week when I had Michael Ledgy on the show, 
when you are making a movie and you have money taken away, you've got to up your creativity. And I feel like they did a really good job there with this one. I wish they hadn't had dwelled so much on some of the heads of the non uh, <laughs> star apes because it was pretty obvious they were over the head slip masks. It felt like to me, but I thought Caesar's makeup was better than it had any right to be considering the budget cuts and all that. In, in the previous films, you can sometimes see the human's mouth inside the mouth of the apes. I felt like I couldn't do that with Caesar, and I was looking. No, Caesar was definitely the best. Uh, the other ones did suffer where you could see the actor's mouth or a little bit of the skin around their eyes. Yeah. was another place that I, I saw where the illusion of the apes fell through a little bit. But Caesar was pretty solid. I mean, spot on. Yes, Caesar was very well done. I mean, it was nice that we had McDowell. In the makeup again, but as a different character. And I was wondering how McDowell was going to continue in this franchise. I think we talked a little bit about that last time. He plays his son. (laughs) Uh, What do you think his dad would think of what Caesar did? I don't think his dad would have been too happy about it, personally. Yeah, I don't know how his dad would have handled being in that situation, though. That was a tough situation to be in. I I want to know how Zero would have handled it. She's the one that I would be more curious to see, you know, if she was still around, how she would have maybe given advice to Milo Caesar along the way. And I do feel like the portrayal of Caesar was so complete that I I had even forgotten he was originally called Milo in the first film or the previous film. Yep. I mean, he was so into the character. I mean, was, of course it's Caesar. It's Caesar. You know, all the way, it's just was a very strong performance that I really appreciated. And Montalban is back. Armando. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, Armando. I'm glad he was back. It was nice to have that continuity. Yeah. And it also explains where Milo Caesar had been for the intervening, what, 18 years since the uh, escape from the Planet of the Apes. He's been performing in the circus, been kept out of the major cities, more of a rural circus. But at the beginning of the film, he's actually coming to one of the the major cities to perform and to promote the circus. I wanted to touch on a little bit more about the budget constraints. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's, get the, yeah. let's go there. The jumpsuits that uh, the apes wear throughout this film. I know where you're going with this. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> uh, we can thank Erwin Allen for those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, the patches uh, all came from the Irwin Allen series, The Time Tunnel, from 1966. And the jumpsuits are leftover costumes from the Fox TV series Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Which you can see on MeTV every Saturday night after Sven Gulli. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the large set that was the Ape Management Center, where the apes were all processed and trained, mm-hmm. uh, was a redress of the set of... Admiral Matthews' office and the Triton Control Complex from City Beneath the Sea in 1971. I'm not familiar with that one. So they were definitely saving money by reusing as much stuff as they could from um, what they had around the uh, Fox Studio lot. Which, again, I felt like they used it pretty creatively. I never thought, hey... That's from that show I sometimes watch after Svengoolie. I never got that impression. So No, I them. never did either. Kudos to the filmmakers for saving money and making it not look like they were just saving money, basically. Right. <laughs> now, did you also notice another big difference from this film uh, as compared to the previous three? The rating of this film? This one had to have a darker or a darker, a stronger rating, right? 
Yes, this is the first one that was not rated G. It's actually rated PG. Well, it would have to be, I would think. Oh. And this is the the first one that also doesn't have a pre-title sequence. That's right. That I didn't notice. It just dives and, right in. It just Conquest of Planet of the Apes, 1991. Yep. And, and there is a script for a pre-title sequence that actually gets referenced later on in the film. Okay. And it shows up in the script and the novelization. There's a nighttime pre-title scene where police on night patrol, they actually shoot an escaping ape. And they discover that his body is covered with welts and bruises, which is evidence of severe uh, abuse. And there's a scene where Governor Breck refers to the ape that physically assaulted his master, thereby prompting McDonald to report that the escapee must have been the result of severe mistreatment. Okay. Uh, that scene appears uh, in the first chapter of the novelization of the movie. It was also in the Marvel Comics adaptation of the film that uh, came out in the uh, early 70s. But it was never in the final cut. And the uh, the Blu-ray extended cut does not contain that pre-credit uh, sequence either. So was it not shot, you think? Or do you think it was shot and we just don't have the footage? I've seen reports where it was not shot. And I've seen reports that it was shot. So I don't know. But this Blu-ray set that came out in 2008, which I assume that's what you watched as well, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this is the first time that the original director's cut has been publicly available. And even that version doesn't have this uh, pre-credit scene. So they had designed a pre-credit sequence that would have grabbed the audience just like the previous four or three films, but it never made it to the light of day. So the next one does have a pre-credit? The next one... I mean, not to spoil. <laughs> well, it's the one I've seen the least, so honestly, I can't remember. Okay, okay. Although, you know, really, if you think about it, you go back to um, Escape from Planet of the Apes. That's where things start to turn, I feel like. And this one just, I don't know if it's a natural progression or what, but <laughs> boy, it goes dark. It stays dark, and I feel so bad for being a human. I, I just feel awful. <laughs> for what these imagined humans did in the far future of 1991. Oh. So we have Roddy. We have Ricardo. And we talked briefly about this when we talked about Escape. There is another returning actress, but not the same character. Natalie Trundy. Mm -hmm. uh, we first saw her in this uh, series of films in Beneath the Planet of the Apes, where she played one of the uh, mutants. Uh, her name was Albana. She's the one that uh, basically she slit her wrist in the bathtub. In Escape from the Planet of the Apes, she was Dr. Stephanie Branton. Now here, she plays the chimpanzee Lisa, the first time that she's in the ape makeup, and she'll return in battle playing Lisa as well. Oh, okay. She's, uh, she's in as many apes films as Roddy is. Oh, wow. I wonder what her connection was to the franchise. I mean... Obviously, Roddy's kind of the face, but I wonder what her connection was to the franchise there. If I remember correctly, and let me double check this, I think she was a girlfriend of one of the producers oh, or okay. something. Okay. But I'm not 100% sure on that one. The widow of Marilyn Monroe's press agent, Arthur P. Jacobs. That was one of the high muckety mucks in the franchise, wasn't he? Arthur P. Jacobs is the producer. producer. So yep. she was married to him? I think they were dating and then they got married somewhere along the, um, along the line. Jacob's cast his wife, Starlet and Natalie Trendy, in various roles in the four-ape sequels. Yep, there we go. That, that's why she was in so many films. See, I had no idea going into this. I knew Roddy McDowell was kind of the face of the franchise. That's all I knew. I didn't realize that there kind of sort of was another, even though you don't get to see her face in all of them, <laughs> her actual face. 
And depending on which version of the film that, of Conquest that you watch, in the theatrical version, she actually speaks. Really? There at the end, uh, she yells no mm. when um, they're about to kill Brack. She's the one that yells no, and that's what triggers additional speech that Roddy gets that we'll talk about, I'm sure. The audio quality of that additional speech is so, I mean, I'm a podcaster, so whenever I'm watching a movie or a TV show and I know they're doing a voiceover or ADR or a drop-in of some sort, and I, I can just tell you know, the, the quality of the audio. And it was pretty obvious in this to me as well. You know, my ears picked up that, yeah, that's just him doing a voiceover in a booth somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of reasons it's easy to tell that it was tacked on. There's close up of Caesar's face minus his mouth. Well, yeah. And it's very, very <laughs> grainy looking. So obviously they did some post-production on the film to zoom into a certain point of it. There's a lot of telltale signs that that was something that was done post-production and I guess this is as good a time as any to talk about why they did this. As we've mentioned a couple times, this film is very dark. It's also, for a film of this time, it's also very bloody. And the original yeah. end ending is very bloody. It actually tested terribly. The kids loved the Apes films when these were coming out, so parents would take their kids to go see this. And when they had the final film ready for a test audience in Phoenix, Arizona, people were walking out because it was so bloody and it's such a, a dark turn at the end of the film. Well, Fox did not have any money for reshoots at all. So the only thing that they could do is bring Roddy McDowell in, rewrite a little bit of an ending to his speech that he gives to make it sound like he's regretting some of his decisions make him reconsider of what's going on. They also run some film backwards in the, in the mix just to try to give it a little bit more of a hopeful ending. You'd think that these people who saw the first or the previous film would know things were going to go. I mean, they shot a baby yes. at the end of escape. Come on. <laughs> That's not happy. Go lucky. Let's take the kids in the movie type stuff. I was watching this. The first time I watched this, uh, I watched the unrated just because that's where I went in this high roll. And when one of the apes got shot, I guess in the face or in the, in the chest area and blood went all over, I, I was like, whoa, I, I, I know I'm watching the unrated version, but I was not expecting that. And of course, it was the, the bright red molt, melted crayon looking blood that you get in a lot of these 70s movies. But oh, it reminded me so much of Dawn of the Dead. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, wow, I, I wasn't expecting that at all. And then it continues. I mean, as the movie goes on, more apes and people are getting shot. Yeah, people are getting shot. What what really struck me is while there was fires going around, you see some of the gorillas picking up the dead soldiers and piling them like cordwood. Yeah. I'm just, they don't ever show it, but I'm expecting them to set them on fire. You know, to make another zombie movie reference, I mean, it's like the end of Night of the Living Dead. You know, they're just piling them up. Another one for the fire, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. Pretty intense. So how did this one do when it came out? Did it make money? It made some money, but not near as much as the previous three. And we'll touch on this more when we get to battle. There was a lot of outrage by people that went to see the movie saying that it was too dark. 
And there is a course correction coming in the oh, theme okay. and the uh, feel of the movies. Okay. An overcorrection, if you ask me, but it's coming. Now, the time travel aspect of this, the time part of this, is this holding up so far? Is the continuity still holding up okay? I, I, I think there's a, a kind of a glitch in the matrix I mean, <laughs> here because it wasn't supposed to be Caesar, right? I mean, the stories are told no. us about another, another guy. It's either Beneath or in Escape. They mention another ape was actually the leader that starts this revolution, not Caesar. Aldo, I think his name was. Aldo, mm -hmm. yes. And now Aldo will show up in uh, the next film. Okay. Now, he's obviously not the one that starts the revolution, but his story will sort of get tied into the whole continuity. It is a little off from what we've heard before, but he does make an appearance in the next film. Okay. I mean, I don't think it breaks the movie or anything like that. I didn't have a problem with it. I just... You know, how long ago was the far future of 1991 <laughs> compared to the original Escape? I mean, there's history and records can be changed or whatever. And besides, in Escape, they're talking about how they know the history and all that. And they weren't supposed to know that in the previous two films because that was all protected by the lawgivers and all those people. So, yeah. Yep. I could geek out about time travel stuff for <laughs> days. I have yet to see a time travel movie that goes multiple ones that doesn't create some sorts of paradoxes and continuity problems. So. Yeah. And we're recording this the weekend that X-Men Apocalypse came out. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Back to the Future holds up all right. It's got a, it's got a couple issues, but not it too bad. I mean, they change an actress, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and an actor, I guess, too, technically. Yeah. Yep. Anyway. Back to the apes. Wow. <laughs> There's another actor that I wanted to to make mention of in this film, and that's the man that's playing Governor Breck. Well, I was going to say, it's got to be Breck, right? What yes. What a delightful villain. Don Murray. What? Oh, what a delightful villain. I want to say something <laughs> I try not to say on Monster Kid Radio very often. What a delightful villain. <laughs> oh, he's awesome. I mean, he's kind film. of one note, but yeah. he's charismatically over the top, melodramatic, twirling mustache one note. I love it. What I really like about his character, and it's it, it's something that's in the uh, bonus features of the Blu-ray, he talks about how his character would have fit right into Nazi Germany. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that is perfect, the way to describe him. And so what he did while he was learning his lines, and he's, he speaks fluent German, so he translated all of his lines into German and practiced them in German to get the feel of how a German would handle this to give it even a little bit more of that Nazi Germany feel to his performance. That's dedication. Yeah. I mean, it worked. He yes. does have this slightly off kilter delivery, at least for us English speakers. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's familiar. You speak English, but there is just a slight edge to it, especially when you put him next to uh, is a Harry Rhodes. Uh, yes. McDonald, his assistant, man, they, they are like opposites. I'm surprised they were able to stand so close to each other because I felt like they were magnets. One had been flipped around and they were just supposed to repel, you know? Well, the ironic thing, you're talking about how he felt so not American, you know, being German. He's actually born in Hollywood, California. Yeah, Don I know, Murray. right? <laughs> and he's still with us, I think. A lot of the people are no longer with us, but I believe he's still around. He's going to appear in the new Twin Peaks. Is he really? Yes. Well, good for him. But I thought he was he, 
he was really good. I definitely got that fascist oh, yeah. feel from the government in this film down to the point where some of the uniforms look like SS men. You know, they have those sharp lines and angles to how some of the costumes are constructed. They have that edge to them, and they're all pretty much black. I mean, everything's very monochromatic. And again, that's another word he's thrown around a lot in the special features of the Blu-ray. The setting, the costumes, they're all pretty stilted, and it does have that kind of oppressive overseer-type government vibe going. You know, call it Nazism, fascism, whatever. Well, that's the the humans are all that way. They're all black and white. Of course, and you've got your own Allen jumpsuits and all the apes. So you've got this nice contrast. It's not black hats and white hats. It's black suits and colored jumpsuits. But man, <laughs> he was delightful. Yes, I mean, I, as, a, as a jerk. I mean, yeah, <laughs> he played a, a great villain that you you hated. I don't know if I want to say I was glad to see him <laughs> the end that he made, but he deserved what he got. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think I preferred the unrated version, too. Now, I did not watch all of the theatrical cut. Uh, I did kind of skim through it a little bit, and then I watched like the last 15, 20 minutes of it because I know the ending is where the big change is. Yeah. There's a, there's less blood mm. in the earlier scenes in the um, theatrical cut, but yeah, the ending is where the big changes happen. In the theatrical cut, we don't see him getting, I mean, you don't see him getting killed in the unrated either. It's all just beneath the camera. But in the theatrical, they don't beat him to death. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't get shot. There's a bunch of gorillas with long guns, and they just hit him with the butts of their rifles and shotguns and stuff. Over and over and over again. It's quite brutal. As Derek said, it's just below camera. So you just, you see them swinging, but that's it. And it's after they've put him next to a whole bunch of the bodies that we were talking about being sacked up. So he's got dead people all around him, blood all over the ground. Yep. He's ter- there's fear in his eyes. That that over the top, you know, evil becomes just fear. He knows he's failed and he's going to die. If we fail, it's just going to be a planet of the apes. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> he's the guy who finally gets to say the title of the movie in the movie itself. <laughs> Always look for that moment. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> now, you you mentioned uh, Harry Rhodes as well as McDonald. Man, that character, I didn't know where to go with him. I mean, I knew he was politically the opposite of the governor of Breck. But uh, I just had a hard time going, figuring him out. I knew he was going to try to help the apes, but at some point, the apes are going to start killing everybody and – you're a human too. So what do you, you know? Yeah. I had a real hard time kind of figuring out where he's going to end up. I would like to have had his character expanded a little bit. Why was he a friend of Breck? Why was he in his quote unquote cabinet? Yeah. How did that happen? What was the political situation to bring those two together? Because they are polar opposites. Oh yeah. I can't imagine Breck would be like, you know who I want as my assistant? That guy who's going to question everything that I do. <laughs> Someone completely oh, opposite. <laughs> I mean, I understand the checks and balances thing, but I don't think Breck really would have cared. I also cringed a little bit, and maybe this is just me being kind of overly aware of my race. I, I cringed a little bit when Caesar and McDonald are talking, and Caesar looks at McDonald and says, you of all people should know what it's like to rise against your masters, or something along those lines. It's like, because he's black? Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's kind of a jump, isn't it? But then when you start to think about when this movie came out, 
and the other types of movies that were doing incredibly well at this time. Yeah, this was the height of the black exploitation movement in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And it definitely fits that mold. And, and I like me a good black exploitation flick. <laughs> I really do. One of these days I want to do Blackula here on the show. I know that's probably not the best example of black exploitation, but still. And I, I love that film. <laughs> I have it on my DVR um, right now because TCM played it. Was it TCM that played it a little bit ago? I don't remember. I have it on the DVR. My wife and I are flipping through channels the other day and we pulled the DVR to see what's there. And <laughs> she stops on Blackula. She looks at me and it's like, Really? It's like, yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah, I just really, it's Dracula's soul, brother. Really? <laughs> yeah, I just picked up uh, Blackula and Scream Blackula Scream double disc for like three bucks. I did make the concession that Scream Blackula Scream isn't nearly as good. <laughs> I've never seen it, so <laughs> That's, I mean, it's all right, but Blackula, man. Maybe later this year we'll do Blackula. We'll see. <laughs> anyway. This movie comes out during the heyday of the black exploitation films that are making a lot of money. They're not spending a lot of money on them. They're bringing in pretty decent box office, and it's bringing a different audience to the theaters, making going to the movies an experience for a different demographic. And by working some of the race issues into this film, also reacting to things that were going on in the real world racially, yeah, uh, def- it, it does make sense. It's definitely uh, showing the American civil rights movement. The the apes rising up is an allegory for the repressed in that movement. It's it's quite it, it's it's unusual that you know an Englishman, Paul Dean, is the one that's bringing this out in in the story, but it's definitely you know drawing inspiration from that. I think as far back as the first film, though, if you really look at it, you can start to see some things, some undercurrents. Yeah. It felt like this was the most blatant. Well, in the the previous films, there's the interaction between the chimpanzees, the gorillas. Yes. You see that. This one, it's pretty much all of the apes against man. Because you see the apes, you see the, the chimpanzees, you see the gorillas. They're all working together for the most part in this film. But it is kind of telling, you know, we mentioned Breck's demise. All you see are gorillas. Yeah. You can even, if you look at it, you can even start to see the delineation starting to form here. I mean, outside of the different types of primates, in Planet, in uh, Beneath, you see the break. That there is kind of a weird racism between the different primates there. And you can start to see that here. That the gorillas are the aggressive, the really aggressive ones. I mean, it makes it easy that the gorillas are all in red jumpsuits and True. the chimpanzees are in green jumpsuits. But yeah, the, the the scene where they're showing all of those gorillas standing over Breck, I mean, it's just a sea of red jumpsuits. Uh, when I saw that, I was like, I bet Scott misses his favorite general right there. And he would fit in yeah, right there. He would. He would be perfect there, except for he, could, he wouldn't be speaking yet. So <laughs> That's true. That's true. The only good human is a dead human. Yeah. <laughs> that guy. Uh, I want to go back to Harry Rhodes real quick and that scene I was talking about where it's like, you of all people, I love, even though I cringed a little bit without really thinking about why, you know, they were doing it that way. I still love that scene so much. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's one particular exchange of that scene, in that scene, buried in that scene, where Caesar's telling him, we're going to rise up. Well, it probably isn't going to work. Well, what choice do I have? We'll do it again. Well, it won't work. 
well, maybe. I mean, I love that. I'm paraphrasing, but I love that little bit of exchange. I mean, it's just phenomenal. Yeah, you could see that Caesar is going to keep trying until it succeeds because he knows it will succeed eventually. So good. <laughs> and Roddy McDowell was a master. Really was. He is amazing in this film. He continues to impress me. You know, when, when I saw these films, you know, the first time I saw these films, I was not young enough to really appreciate or even realize that it's the same actor all the way through, you know, these films. But as I got older and, and really learned more about what, you know, what actors actually do and, and the, the, the same actors, it just impresses the heck out of me how well he does not only his power of his voice and, and what he's doing, but he, the movements that he does, the facial movements that come through on that mask, he's just amazing in these films. The nonverbal acting, the physical body language, it's wonderful. And a while back, I was going through YouTube looking up different things about the apes without finding any spoilers. And I did find that clip from the Carl Burnett show where he shows <laughs> up in makeup. And he's just walking like Roddy McDowell. And when you watch that and then you watch the movies, even though he's wearing the same head, <laughs> you can see the difference. You know, that is not Roddy walking around. Even as Caesar, who spent most of his life probably standing up straight, as opposed to being hunched over like, you know, the non-evolved apes, he's still an ape. He's not a guy in a costume to me. He just loses himself in there for the benefit of the film. I mean, it's just fantastic. Well, to me, especially in this film, he portrays the shocked look of seeing how other apes are treated when he first gets to the big city. Mm -hmm. Very nonverbal yes. the way he does it yeah. is, is really good. And when he starts to become the leader, he's got this air or vibe around him of being a reluctant leader at first. And he plays that so well. It's like he's doing something he knows needs to be done, but he doesn't really want to do it at the beginning. But then at the end, when the bloodlust takes over, he's great. Oh, yeah. I mean, he goes on a couple of different journeys in this film. And you can see that you go from the, the nonverbal facial uh, communication being disgusted by how apes are being treated in the city, slowly building, slowly building, slowly building to the end. Human, uh, what, you human bastard or? Yes. Yeah, yeah lousy human, whatever. Whatever he screams there, which kind of sets the whole thing off in motion. <laughs> There's a slow, slow, slow build and then that explosion there that happens. And then he's off on his own and he's down again. And there's that scene where he's crying at the or the poster of Armando's circus. And then from that point on, the movie continues to build and build and build. And he does get to that. I have to lead this. I'm the only one who can do it. I don't want to. Boy, that Lisa sure is cute. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they they did. She she is pregnant, right? I mean, she's going to have a kid, right? He was picked early on when he goes through the yeah. the ape rehabilitation. Ape management? Ape management, yes. Uh, there was the one point where they needed to pick out three gorillas and one chimpanzee for mating. And they wanted to pick out their best ones. Well, as he was going through the training, he was doing it. He was acing everything. So he obviously got picked to do that. So she's obviously pregnant. <laughs> obviously. Because <laughs> it just takes one, you know, forced mating situation. Yes. Yeah. I'm assuming there will be a child in the next film. I'm not going to say anything. Right yeah. Now. <laughs> yeah. 
I know, I know. You know, that is one thing that I liked about this movie, uh, just speaking of the monkeys mating. Um, <laughs> now, we did there, watch the unrated version, but it didn't go there. <laughs> <laughs> this was a particular parody that I picked up. At, no. Um, <laughs> no, thank you. And you can cut that, too. <laughs> guy comes out wearing a banana costume. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <sighs> Oh, wow. What I liked about that and that whole sequence, I feel like a movie today and man, do we say, do we have a little conversation like this every time we talk about one of these movies? I feel like a movie today would really belabor the point, spend a lot of time showing the ape management, the rehabilitation and all of that, showing the monkeys getting together and doing their thing to make more monkeys. Don't call them monkeys. Well, that's offensive to them. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> spending the time showing Caesar leading, you know, organizing the revolution, setting up a meeting place for everybody to come together. I feel like a movie today would do that, spend all this time going. This movie didn't have to do that, and we didn't get lost. We were able to follow. Because, I mean, audiences should be given more credit, I feel like. And, and I feel like a lot of the 70s movies did give audiences more credit than they're given now. Yeah, the the whole plan that Caesar was doing, and you would have probably seen more of him trying to communicate with these other apes to try to get them to come to that secret meeting and to, you know, start stealing things and everything. That you just take for granted when you're watching this, that he did that. You don't need to be shown that. And it doesn't take you out at all. I'm just like, oh, yeah, of course he did. Mm-hmm. I mean, while I'm sure it would have been fun to see Roddy act against a bunch of other you know, people in ape makeup and speaking and trying to convince them, no, it's not a thing to be scared of, you know, whatever. I didn't need it. And I appreciate it. And I respect the movie that much more for it. And I love the fact that the movie didn't go where he was trying to get the apes to steal things that they didn't have access to to begin with. You didn't see him trying to get apes to go rob an armory or something. No, he's talking to the apes that work in restaurants and having them steal knives you're having them apes that go run errands for their masters to pick up things. They're stopping by his place first and showing the list of what they're supposed to pick up. And he'll add a few things to it that, that relate to whatever it is that they're trying to get. And that's how he's building up his armory. He's not doing things that would arouse that much suspicion. I mean, if you, if he sent a group of apes to go, to a gun store and steal it, that would draw attention to them. And I liked that. I liked the fact that he was smart enough to figure out, let's steal what, what won't be missing, basically. I think it shows Caesar's intelligence and, and ability to think long-term, mm-hmm. think about the long game. Uh, there is the one shot of the waiter in the run restaurant who pockets a few knives and then gets that big grin on his face like yeah look what i did it's, oh i love that i love that <laughs> yep. i also love when they're showing up with all the knives and everything it's like okay they got some knives and then the one pulls out that big meat cleaver yeah. like oh okay then <laughs> i'm not messing around <laughs> i also like the one that pulls out the strainer yeah and, and caesar takes it <laughs> and and the guy you know the, the ape goes away and then caesar just kind of like rolls his eyes and tosses it to the side. <laughs> he's trying so <laughs> yeah, that's cute this movie leaves me feeling conflicted but I still really enjoyed it the last 20 minutes 
of escape really sets you up for the feeling of what this film is going to be. I mean, you could easily see them killing babies in, in this film. <laughs> that sounded terrible. <laughs> the Disney podcaster says that while giggling. All right. No, I realized about halfway through the sentence, like, this is going to sound really horrible. But I mean, <laughs> but I mean, how bleak this is, 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 is introduced in that previous movie. And they didn't shy away from it. Unfortunately, the reaction of the movie going public didn't support it as much. But I really enjoyed this film and it fits in with the universe. It fits in. I mean, you, you think of how this would lead in a, a way back to Planet of the Apes and how it starts. And you can see how this fits in really well in that timeline. I, I feel that, too. I feel I mean, you can even going as far as looking at the destruction the apes cause in this film. This isn't just a let's kill all the humans and take things over and, and make it our planet now. They're burning buildings down. Mm -hmm. So when you get to Planet of the Apes and you have this advanced ape society, they're still living in mud huts. And the only real evidence of technology that we see in the apes' hands are the weapons, the guns, which makes sense considering where they came from. Mm -hmm. So if you look at that and you think about, again, I'm going to mention the term long game, look at the long game of that. It all fits. I mean, it's unfortunate that we can't have the bouncy two apes out of time that we had in the first half of Escape, but it all fits. Yep. I mean, you know that some point between now and the beginning of Planet of the Apes, there's going to be a nuclear war as well. It's going to have to scorch the Earth because that's the way you see it. But <laughs> you're going to have to, yeah. <laughs> But you could see where this would lead to it. Now, in the original, I thought the implication was that man did it to themselves. But this is starting to feel like, and you just saying that made me wonder, <laughs> is humanity trying to fight itself at this point? I mean, once the apes take over, don't they have a common enemy to go against? Why are they going to nuke each other when they could just nuke the apes, you know? I don't know or how am to. am I thinking it too, I had, too I far don't, ahead? I'm not sure how okay. to answer that. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> The tone is so different. Mm -hmm. I mean, the score, I, you want to talk about the music real quick? We always talk about the music just because I'm a score geek. But uh, the music in Escape was fantastic. It's so fun. I love it. Music in this is not. No. <laughs> Escape is my favorite uh, score yeah. uh, of the entire run. But yeah, this the, the music in this one is not that good. In fact, it's... I don't even remember too much about it. I just remember it being kind of dark and oppressive and I, I don't think it was bad. It's just, it's different. And that is one thing about this franchise that I do find a little different than say like franchises today. If you have a franchise of a film or even going back to the eighties, even with like star Wars, they all have kind of a similar sound to kind of musically be linked. The time I feel together. Like, yeah. yeah. And it doesn't have to be the same composer all the time. You know, you can have multiple composers working on a Star Trek films, for example, and they all still kind of sort of fit a little bit. I feel like the scores in these films all over the place. And maybe the reason they all feel thematically linked now is because people are watching them at home, they're streaming them, their DVDs, whatever. Back then we didn't have that. So maybe it didn't stick with them. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I do feel like the music is all over the place in the franchise so far. And I did like Escape a lot. Yeah. I respect the first one a heck of a lot for what it is and what it did. 
But in terms of just enjoyability and sitting down, if I'm going to play something right now for fun, it'd be Escape. No, I, I can definitely see that. Now, I still like to go and, and watch the first one, though. Oh, no, I, I love it. But you're talking about just listening to the music, though? Yeah, I was just talking about oh, the music, okay. yeah. I misunderstood. Yeah, no, I'm just talking about the music. No, and uh, the first one, I mean, it's going to be on the big screen later this year, man. We've got to see it. That's that's true. Oh, yeah. July 24th. It's coming up. Less than two months away. July 24th I and the 27th, I think. Yeah. I smell a Monster Kid radio crash. <laughs> A cyber Monster Kid Radio crash. We should not just do it locally here, listeners in the Oregon area. Listeners around the world should all organize their own little MKR apes parties, or at least going to see the movie together. And then we'll, I don't know, meet online somewhere and chat it up. Or, or call into the show and let me know what you think. I don't know. We'll do something. Take pictures. We'll put it in a Flickr album. I don't care. It'll be fun. I am still so much looking forward to this because I have never seen it on the big screen. And I know you have, and that's... Mm-hmm. That makes that's makes me jealous. <laughs> it's pretty impressive on the big screen. This one, um, speaking of big screen, this one was shot in a different process, wasn't it? Uh, Panavision was what the other ones were, but this one was a slightly wider format. Yes, uh, wider, I believe, and I'm trying to remember what that version is called. I forget as well, but I remember when I started the Blu-ray on my HD TV out here in the living room, I, I thought, hmm, those edges look a little fuzzy and a little kind of wrapped around a little bit. I wonder. And then it does say on the screen, it's not Panovich and it's something else, uh, something with a number in it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's <laughs> somebody's online. It's like, just go look at the trivia page on IMDb. It'll be right there. <laughs> it was but, filmed in Todd AO35, which I have never heard of, using Aeroflex ARRI 34. IIC cameras, and yeah, the other films were done in Panavision. A slightly different perspective there. Um, the, the blurred images on the left and right of the screen didn't bug me once we get past the opening credits. I just happened to notice it. Yeah, you, you notice it when you're first starting to watch it, but then once you get engrossed in the film, it you don't see yeah. it. Right, it's not distracting at all. Now, you were wanting to know basically what the critical reaction was. Um, yeah. just, just to throw this out there, mm-hmm. it holds a 44% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, ouch. Yeah, but uh, that's f- not from original reviews. These were from reviews that were done from yeah. 2000 to 2008. When you think about the generational and, and the, yeah. I don't have the official box office numbers or anything, but the film did earn $4.5 million in rentals from the North American box office. Okay. All right. So like theatrical prints going out. Okay. That mm-hmm. makes sense. I can see it getting mixed reviews just because of the tone and what it's about and having some political messages that are a little less under the surface as you saw in the previous films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the original budget was $1.7 million. Wow. And the box office take was 9.7. I'm surprised Fox didn't want to spend the money, but I guess back then... They didn't have it. Yeah, you got to have it to spend it. That's true. They were not doing too well. But well enough to greenlight a sequel, I guess. I mean, was that always in the works, you think? I believe it was, but there's there's not really a setup for one in this one as there was in... I mean, well, it's like the second one. How could you go from there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the third film feels like, you know, that was fun. We made some money. Let's do it again. Let's figure it out. Okay, let's get creative and figure it out. This one... It could end right here. The whole franchise could come to an end. I don't need any more story. I'd love it, I believe but I the, can make it work. I believe the next one was really to set up the television show. Oh, that's right, the TV show. 
which I can't wait to get into. <laughs> That's going to be fun. Because Roddy's in that too, right? I don't believe so. No? Oh, no. It has been like forever since I watched the television show. Not Roddy's in it, man. Okay. I was wrong. Uh, That's what I'm seeing. Is he like in only a couple episodes or is he in the whole thing? I don't know. I don't want to read too much because I don't want to spoil it, but he's showing up on the cast list. Oh, he plays a different character altogether. Okay. I got to stop looking at this. (laughs) (laughs) That does make sense. We would kind of have to. Well, I guess depending on where things fit in the chronology. But then you said it's set up. I don't know. <laughs> I can say it's, it's, it's been a while since I've watched the television show or the animated version. Now, the animated is completely not part of any of it, right? It's kind of a almost like a reboot. Yes. I mean, you got Nova in it again, and she's talking and all that, I think. Mm-hmm. It's not like the Star Trek animated would actually fits in with the storyline. I love the Star Trek animated series. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the um, sequel to Trouble with Triples in the animated yes. version. <laughs> yes, and uh, the uh, the alternate reality one, the, um, where there's an Andorian first officer instead of Spock. Yes, that's I forget what one. that one's called, but yeah, yeah, me too. But I love it. And you know, uh, <laughs> of the big sci-fi franchises, so you've got Star Trek, you got Star Wars, you got this. I am really enjoying adding, you know, the Planet of the Apes franchise to my sci-fi diet. I am going to go back and revisit these repeatedly. When I have time, I need to make time. One of these days, I'm going to read the novel. Uh, I'm excited. I highly recommend the novel. Yeah, I know. I know. I need to. You know, I want to watch the series. I can't wait to get into them. I'm going to go back and rewatch these movies again and again and again. I haven't read it yet. I think you've got it. The Star Trek Planet of the Apes comic crossover i don't have it no but oh, okay. I, I would like i would like to read it i've never read it i, I want to know more about this version of the apes i know things change when burton got involved and then the most recent reboot series i know it's a little different but i'm having a blast just kind of living in this world right now even though they probably would have beat me to death or set me on fire i'm having a blast <laughs> living in this world or shot right you in the now. face or shot me in the face <laughs> man that was awful. You know, the worst of it, the worst of the being shot in the face, yeah, it's awful to see the blood splashing around. It's terrible. But there's one shot where there's a human guard and he's just kind of watching everything at the end and there's just a blood splatter across his face like he's seen some stuff. Yep. That shot is the one that affects me the most. I was like, oh, man. Because <laughs> he didn't just go out. He had to watch it all happen. And you know he's going to get his later, but now he has the time to think about it. Yep. Oh, man. <laughs> the one that gets me is... In the command center, when uh, Breck takes out, he's he shoots the first one in the command oh, center. Oh, man. That was awful. Yeah. You know, not to make light of the film I'm about to reference because it is a heavy, serious film, but to go back to the whole Nazi thing, mm-hmm. I felt like there are characters in Schindler's List that did that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's awful. Terrible. But good. I mean, the movie's great. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel kind of wrung out after watching it, but I feel like this is one I could really dive into and watch again. And well, you know, all of them really. I think you've got to be in a certain mood for this one. I mean, if you're in a happy-go-lucky mood when you put this thing on, you're not, <laughs> well. That'll fix that for you real quick. <laughs> but I mean, you've got to be in a mood for a serious, more serious film. I think because of the the topics that are addressed 
hidden behind the eight masks. You know, and that's one of the things, again, that I like from science fiction or like about science fiction from this era is that you can put all of those things in there and not beat you over the head with it. Yep. You know, I, I love that about these films. And 1970s science fiction, fantasy horror, you can see some things that are, you just don't see now. You know, I, I'm often asked uh, by people who don't listen to the podcast who just know me as the guy who's got all the monster toys on his desk at his day job or the guy who wears the Bela Lugosi t-shirts to work or whatever. I'm often asked why I love these movies so much as opposed to like the modern stuff. And I just feel like there's so much more there to really look at and digest and think. And I'm not saying all modern movies are bad. I, I like a lot of modern films. But I feel like the, the, the storytelling and the messaging are blended so perfectly in some of these movies. Well, I believe it's it, – and I might alienate people with this comment, but I feel especially in horror films – yeah, the older horror films have more to say. Yes, than modern horror films. Agreed. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you, man. That's why I'm doing the monster show. You know, that's why I do Monster Kid Radio. I mean, there's so much more there. I mean, they're fun too. I mean, not taking that away from it or making them too serious, but it's just more there, more meat. Mm-hmm. Even the low budget stuff. This one's got a lot of meat, man. <laughs> I don't think I would watch this one cold. I think you're right. You have to be in a certain mood. I could see watching it back-to-back with Escape, just because Escape does take the downturn at the end and lead into this. But, and, yeah, not by itself. <laughs> and and definitely you shouldn't start here. <laughs> oh, no. I am so glad we started from the beginning. Although, chronologically, I suppose somebody could do, like, a massive fan edit of all five films. No, you wouldn't really need to edit. You'd just start with Escape. That's true. That's true. Start with Escape. Go to this one. I assume the next one. Yeah, and you, then you go would back go to, to Battle and then you one would go. Two. Yep. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend it going that way. but <laughs> <laughs> No. Because you start so down and bleak and then you, maybe you start to pick up a little. No, you start out happy. Excuse me. Then you go dark. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know what happens in part five. Go back to the original, which is good, kind of both even parts. And then you kill everybody at the end of the second one yes the world is destroyed and just like that somebody turned out the blue planet what no (laughs) just like uh, douglas adams famously said don't destroy the earth in chapter two you might need it later exactly (laughs) (laughs) it's a shame i waited so long to watch these movies well that's the one thing it's good to say about movies they're always there whether you, you saw them now when they, they were are, new yeah. or yeah, today, now they are. So if there's a series or something out there that you've always been interested in or have heard about or friends talk about, give them a shot. I think this one probably affected me more than the other ones, like really affected me uh, in, a, in a deeper way. It wasn't just like an entertaining ride with some things underneath the surface. I mean, this one is going to affect me. It's going to stick with me for a while. So let's not wait so long between this one and the next one, okay? (laughs) I don't want to dwell on this one that much longer. (laughs) Although I suspect things aren't going to get very much better. The word battles in the title for crying out loud. True. Well, later this summer, let's plan on doing that. Sounds sounds like a plan. And then uh, are we going to then invite some other people to come go ape with us at at some point? Yeah, we are going to have, when this is all done... We're going to have a Planet of the Apes roundtable. You, me, uh, Tracy's got the invite as well. And there's a few other people that I have in mind. 
one person I've spoken with who's never been on the show. Well, take that back. He was on a crash episode for a couple of minutes. That was about it. You said never been on the show. I thought, oh, Don Marie's going to be on? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, I have a few other people in mind, uh, which will be fun. And, you know, we'll open it up to the listeners as well, and we'll do like a big uh, sending your feedback about the apes thing. And Well, I, I know I've been approached by at least one other podcaster who's uh, shown interest in it as well. In oh, really? Us. Yes. Is it who I think it is? I would assume so, but I can't read your mind. <laughs> he, he, I think I know who you're talking about. He has been on your show, and he has been on my show. Yep. Okay. <laughs> I wonder how many Skype connections we can put into one call. <laughs> We're going to see what happens. We're going to break the internet. <laughs> We're going to break Skype. <laughs> Anything else we want to say about the movie before I let you go, sir? I'm just glad you dug it. Yeah, and it's I, good. And I hope it continues, but... We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's hopeful. Boy, I can't wait to dive into the next one now. (laughs) No, I am so glad I'm doing this and I'm having a blast and this is great. The the only thing better than finding a movie that you love is talking about a movie that you love with somebody. God, I can't say somebody you love because that just. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Yes. All right. All right. So Scott is on Disney Indiana at DisneyIndiana.com. He's also my co-host and co-producer, along with the amazing Criswell over at <laughs> 1951 Down Place at 1951downplace.com. When he first started getting on the internet and, and did a blog, he, he called his website like the amazing Criswell or something like that. Yeah, he's the so-so Criswell. <laughs> he's the so-so Criswell. <laughs> Nice. I'm going to end on that. That's perfect. (laughs) Huge thanks to Scott for being part of the show. I love having him on Monster Kid Radio, and I've been having a blast going through the Planet of the Apes movies. The only downside to any of this is that he's in Indiana and I'm in Oregon, which means that when Fathom Events brings in Planet of the Apes in July... He and I won't be able to go see the movie together, but that doesn't mean that you can't go see the movie. I'm going to put a link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net so you can find the closest screening of this film. July 24th is the date that I'm looking at for the Monster Kid Radio crash here in the Portland, Oregon area. I'm going to go see it. I'm going to try to get as many people together to go see it in my area. Highly recommend you do the same. To see Planet of the Apes on the big screen is amazing it looks great it sounds great it feels great i can't wait to see what's going to happen here again thanks scott for being part of the show and i cannot wait to get into the fifth and final planet of the apes movie with you here soon you shall pay black prince i curse you with my name you shall be black Blackula, the Black Avenger, rising from his tomb to fill the night with horror. Blackula, Dracula's soul brother, deadlier even than he. Blackula, he thirsts for your blood, he hungers for your soul. 
Comic book fans, I'm Joe Stuber, producer and host of Comic Book Central, where each and every week I welcome a legendary talent to the Comic Book Central lair to talk about bringing comic books to life. Greetings, true believers. This is Stan Lee. When do you think the Academy is going to wise up and create a special Oscar category for best cameo? I don't know. They're just asleep on their feet. Maybe your show, maybe this interview will be the turning point. She is Erin Gray. Erin, welcome to the show. I ended up being a contract player making, I think it was $600 a week. Gil was doing great. He was making the big bucks. You got the posters, though. You got <laughs> yes. the posters. Come I on. look better in white spandex. What can I say? Hey, this is Michael Rosenbaum. Lex Luthor from Smallville. Make sure you listen to this guy's show. He sounds like a good guy. People should listen to you, Joe. Catch the very latest episodes at the website, comicbookcentral.net. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, like it on Facebook, follow it on Twitter, and be sure to join me each and every week for Comic Book Central. This is Dean Kane, Superman from Lois and Clark, and you're listening to Comic Book... Comic Book... Comic Book Central. Where comic books come to life. Excelsior. The evil that men do lives after them. Beware. 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 From beyond the grave comes blood-freezing horror as an ancient curse brings paralyzing terror to all who know the terrible secret of the four skulls of Jonathan Drake. to the end of this episode of monster kid radio i want to thank you for being part of the podcast by listening by supporting the show by retweeting tweets and sharing facebook posts by giving us reviews in the itunes store by just spreading the word you make the show that much better so thank you for being part of the mkr experience 
journey something just thank you all right monsterkidradio.net is where you're going to find everything that you need to know about monster kid radio between episodes from here you're going to find links to everything that we talked about here on the show as well as any other episode of mkr all in the show notes every link that you need it's right there we also have links to every song that's appeared here on the show and our contact information is there as well our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com and our voicemail line is 503-479-5657 that's 503-479-5mkr that's the number that chris called earlier and left a voicemail on so if you want to leave a message like chris that's how you do it you can call about this episode or any other episode of monster kid radio or just call to talk to chat it up a little bit about some classic monster movies maybe you have a favorite movie featuring the talents of charlie gamora well who's charlie gamora well come back next week to find out well here's a teaser in the form of a trailer in the past there was a man who dressed as an ape he was the ape man of hollywood his name was charlie That's the trailer from the documentary Charlie Gamora, uncredited. Charlie Gamora was a makeup artist, but he's probably most known for his gorilla work. And we're going to have a monster maker join us next week to talk about this documentary and just Charlie Gamora in general. Go through our top three Charlie Gamora films. That monster maker that's joining us next week is Mitch Gonzalez, the man behind the monsters of the Mimiverse. Fresh off of the production of the latest Christopher R. Mim movie, where Skeeto Nazi Hunter, he's coming here to talk about Charlie Gamora, uncredited. That'll be happening in episode 273. I do have an episode in the can with Stephen D. Sullivan, in which we go over the winners of the second annual Monster Rally Retro Awards, or the rallies. So that'll be coming up down the line as well. And then I've got a few other scheduled recordings happening. I have enough to keep me going for quite some time. And I invite you to join me for that ride through the rest of the year. Did you know that we're going to be hitting episode 300 at the end of this year? 300 episodes of Monster Kid Radio. We got to do something. We got to make some sort of a plan, an an event, something. Just don't know what yet. So if you have any ideas, well, call in or drop me an email. Also, those of you who have been paying attention, you might notice that there was an episode of a non-Monster Kid Radio podcast that went out into the Monster Kid Radio feed earlier this week. That was an episode of the Dorado Films podcast, the podcast that I produce for Dorado Films. And the reason I shared it on the Monster Kid Radio feed is because that episode was about the movie Island of the Doomed, which is a monster movie. It's pretty cool. It has a killer tree. It's got Cameron Mitchell doing an awesome barren mad scientist thing. And because it is a monster movie and relevant, well, thought I'd share the podcast here. If you dug it, or if you want to go check it out, you can find out more about Dorado Films at DoradoFilms.com or go to DoradoFilms.Libsyn.com to check out the podcast. I produce that. It comes out every weekend. There's a new episode detailing what we've got going on over at Dorado Films. I'm going to go ahead and wrap up so I can get to, well, rewatching this Charlie Gamora documentary before I record with Mitch this weekend. So remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, this week's song, Ape Surfing After Lunch, appears on the album Surfing After Lunch by the band The Apes Party. That song's there. It belongs to them. 
and it appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio through that Creative Commons license. You can check them out over at theapesparty.bandcamp.com and check out their music. And this two-song release, Surfing After Lunch, it's only one euro. All right, I'm out. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. (laughs) 